Hey, everybody. It's Mike Carlson from Podcast the Ride. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Scott Gairdner. Hello. And Jason Sheridan. Hey. And we've got a little announcement. We sure do. Yep. We're launching our new podcast on an app called Spoke to give Spoke. you three exclusive episodes. Can you believe it? Three. I can't. Yeah. Don't don't believe it, but it's true. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. Well, how does that work, though? Well, I'm going to explain. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. So they're all grouped by topics or themes is what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for figuring that out. Thank mm-hmm. you. I mean, you could try like a playlist that's uh, like about music being decoded when it's playlists with clips about unpacking and analyzing and figuring out how people make songs and what. why are they so cool, you know? They also have one uh, called Spoke's Perpetually Single Playlist, dedicated to podcasts about relationships, or lack thereof, in my case. Sure, Jason, don't put yourself down. I want to, I want to, all right. (laughs) (laughs) There's all sorts of things is what we're trying to say, and Spoke has, like, fun exclusive content from Feral, like our podcast. Uh, So you definitely don't want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now, free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Podcast the Ride's exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash podcast the ride. That's the address. Uh, Check it out. Spoke. It's time to spoke. Yeah, we're spoken. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable, you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. <music> Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. I don't know who the hell else I would be. Uh, if uh, you like that theme music playing there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Go to lesblanks.com and check them out. Uh, and if you haven't listened to my show before, um, thank you, by the way. I've noticed I've garnered some listeners in uh, France and Omaha recently. Uh, actually, a lot in France. I don't know. I thank you. And I love France and I love uh, Truffaut. So that uh, this is a good combo. Uh, and I like French food, so if anybody in France listening wants to invite me over for dinner, I'll gladly do it. Um, but thank you very much for listening. If you haven't listened to my show before, it is sort of uh, exactly what the title says there. It's uh, I have a conversation with somebody, and uh, they are usually someone who interests me and is a fascinating person and I kind of wish to learn from. Today's guest is a musician. That was my dog, Charlie Barking. Uh, it's uh, a musician, Jeffrey Lewis. Um, he's had a number of bands that he's fronted. Uh, I'm a big, big, big fan of his music, so to get him on the show was quite a thrill. Um, and it's a really great chat, so I hope you uh, really enjoy it. Uh, but before we get to the conversation with Jeffrey Lewis, 
I just want to say uh, there's something you guys can do that would really help support my show, and that's if um, on the Feral Audio site on my page, the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, there is a Amazon link, and if you click on that link and uh, purchase things, I get a kickback of the money, and it goes towards uh, to Feral Audio and myself, and we use that money to improve conversations with Matt Dwyer and, and improve Feral Audio. And you can pretty much you can buy anything on Amazon. Like in I know in certain states like California, you can buy your groceries, you could buy your cleaning goods, you could buy batteries, you can buy Cheerios in a much cheaper fashion than you can in the grocery store. Um, socks, underwear, movies. I'm a big fan of buying movies and books on there, especially the films, the filmsies, uh, the Blu-rays. Uh, or even on their instant viewing, I do that a lot. But if you please just to put that in your, put that link in your toolbar, and anytime you're like, hey, I'm gonna buy Uncle Buck, or I'm gonna buy uh, some undershirts, some Hanes undershirts, you click on that link, and purchase those things through Amazon, and that helps out conversations with Matt Dwyer greatly. And uh, I'm getting to the point where I need a new recorder because I don't rely on the Feral Audio Studios. I record my things out on the road or on the phone or in my apartment. And speaking of on the road, Conversations with Matt Dwyer is going on a road trip. We're stopping in Fort Bragg, California. We're interviewing a bunch of fascinating people from the Triangle Tattoo Museum. Ruth Weiss, a beat poet who worked with Kerouac and Ginsburg. Uh, and then we're going to Astoria, Oregon, where we're going to explore the entire town and interview people like folk artist Michael Hurley. And it's going to be really great. So uh, visit my website, themattdwyer.com, and all those things... That about that road trip and Amazon are on there. Go to the uh, the But please, I'm begging you, Amazon. If you if all my listeners purchase things on Amazon, it would help the show out greatly. And I'm not saying I'm going to take that money and go buy cocaine because frankly, I'm at an age where cocaine's just going to give me a stroke. But uh, it, it's going to go towards better microphones, better recorders, uh, and uh, taking. Uh, trips to meet more interesting people in, uh, and and help out the podcast. So I'd greatly, greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much for your support. And I'm, well, my numbers of this show have been going up lately, like they're astronomical uh, compared to what they were. So I, I thank all of you people for listening to my show. It really means a lot because uh, I feel like I'm doing this for love and not for the dough and for the experience of meeting these great people, having these conversations, and the art of podcasting. I do believe this is an art form. So thank you very much for listening and your support. And um, that is it, man. I just uh, I don't want to babble on too much about how you can help me. God knows I need a lot of help in life. And my girlfriend and I just got another dog because we're crazy. <laughs> now we're officially crazy dog people who live in too small of an apartment and we have two dogs, so it also means we have a lot of fur on things, and we've lost a lot of shoes and clothing because we got a new dog. My dog chewed the ass out of my shorts. I thankfully wasn't wearing them, but hey, who knows? Might have liked it, right? Um, well, that's enough of my uh, babble. Again, uh, visit themattdwyer.com. Go to the Feral Audio site. Find my page. Put that Amazon link in your toolbar. That'll greatly help me. Now, let's get on to a uh, great conversation with musician, songwriter, and artist, cartoonist, Jeffrey Lewis. Hey, 
because I've wanted to, I've wanted to have you on the show since day one, and now I'm uh, hitting my two year mark. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, after so much anticipation, I can only disappoint. <laughs> well, and I, I expect I, I will do the same. So uh, this is going to be splendid. Um, all right. Great. <laughs> Uh, I do want to say uh, just off the bat too. I, um, as a on a personal note, like I really love your music, and it hits on a very visceral, emotional level for me. Like the first time I heard your stuff, I it was one of those, and I find this rare kind of these days. But I was like, what What is this? Like I had to know what it was, and um, I don't know. I. I, I don't know if you intend to do that when you write your songs, but it it hits a lot of people I know on a very emotional and personal level. Well, it's flattering to hear. Uh, it's definitely something that I want to find in music that I like and that uh, there's so much stuff in the world that just doesn't uh, grab me or seem to enrich me or move me in one way or the other. It's there's so much stuff out there and once in a while I encounter something that uh, makes me feel that way. Um, and it's nice to hear that stuff that I make would strike you that way. Uh, too bad. Too bad. None of that nice stuff makes any difference to my level of depression and alienation, but Oh, well nice. Anyway, maybe I'll make some money. Uh, yeah. You, uh, you speak about that a lot. And, uh, about your depression and alienation, but I mean, and that's probably why I think a lot of people relate to your to your music. Um, do you find that the music helps it at all, or does that make it worse? I guess it probably helps. Um, definitely certain situations that I felt like, um, and you know, things that I in my comic books as well. And I don't even want to be, you know, an artist of the purely depressing or navel-gazing or self-obsessed or neurotic. Um, there's so many other things to do with art and music, and I try doing all those other things, too. And I don't even necessarily set myself up as some kind of hero of the neurotic and anxious. I don't think I have any claim on that any more than anybody else does. I probably don't have any more anxiety or, uh, you know, I don't have any more bad days in the course of a year than probably the average person does. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but somehow, maybe coming from me and coming from my voice and my way of putting things together, it seems like it, uh, it it's relatable in a way that, you know, maybe me as a heavy metal tough guy or me as a, you know, a wizened old blues man or something that doesn't, it just doesn't uh, come across in the same genuine article kind of way. So even though I may have some days where I feel more heavy metal or feel more old blues guy or feel more this way or that way, uh, somehow the, the voice that I speak in just kind of, is a is a conduit for certain things and not as good a conduit for other things. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you have a lot of material that is uh, sort of anti the system. But when one listens to your music, there's not an overt like aggression or anger to it. But there's definitely you're disenchanted with some things in the world. 
Well, sure. I mean, again, probably not any more than other people, or maybe more than some people. It's, it's very hard to say. I mean, from my little corner of reality here in New York City, you get a distorted perspective of what the majority of people think and feel. And I definitely noticed from the earliest days of uh, when I realized that I could make songs that really felt like they meant something to me and felt like I had sort of found my voice as uh, as an artist in that way, uh, starting from like the late 90s when I first started doing this stuff. Um, I, you know, I, there was like certain things that, uh, you know, I, that, that just sort of felt like it was my, with things that I needed to say. And some of the things that I feel like I need to say, um, relate to those elements, uh, whether it's social or political. I, I, I'm not really a political artist by nature, but I think in some ways it's more effective when I do veer into any of those social topics. The fact that I'm not doing a concert like, oh, come here, this guy who's doing political stuff, that it's kind of like just part of this general indie rock show where those things are not sort of elevated on a platform that separates them from a general entertaining culture. They're just kind of one more thread in the thing that I'm doing. It, it, it just sort of works better that way. Yeah, it seems to like the 90s were a bit more of, you know, when you started that people were more encouraged to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, maybe controversial and to have more of a point of view where I, I would you agree that like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on right now that's just kind of like, hey, let's have fun. <laughs> it's like, let's just forget about everything and talk about us. Well, I do feel like, you know, one of my weird secret weapons in the in the music world that's like, um, you know, because I, I'm, I'm older than most people think I am. I mean, I'm 38, even though I look like 28 or whatever, uh, I still get carded. So people will usually don't realize that I'm basically a 90s band. Um, it's just that nobody was paying attention to what I was doing until the early 2000s. And in some ways, you can kind of see 2001 as a kind of turning point uh, into the modern world, you know, the world of the Internet, the world where there's no Twin Towers, the world where the Strokes and the White Stripes sort of set a template for rock and roll for the following decade, the uh, the post-2001 era where folk and indie folk was, you know, freak folk, essentially, um, all of those things, all those post-2001 elements of reality that I became noticed as a musician and artist in that current post-2001 era, um, I'm actually like a creature of the 90s, definitely. Um, all the, you know, when somebody says indie rock, to me that means Yola Tango, Stereo Lab, Pavement, uh, you know, all the bands that I was listening to in 1994, which you know, might not really ring a bell or seem that relevant to a 21-year-old person today. But, you know, I, when I think indie rock, to me, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not thinking Sufjan Stevens uh, or Vampire Weekend or, uh, you know, even The Strokes, which is, you know, talking uh, 13 years ago already. Uh, so, yeah, I'm basically like an old man who's, you know, to me, like, the uh, not just the music, but the attitude and the 
the uh, lifestyle and the sustainable artistic approach to doing things that was represented by basically all the bands in the Our Band Could Be Your Life book by Michael Lazarad from, you know, Beat Happening and The Minutemen. All of that 80s and 90s stuff is kind of like what I consider, you know, a, a basically like a pre-internet indie alternative world, which is really not the world of today. But I'm, I'm just kind of like an unfrozen caveman from that era, uh, you know, and I seem like somewhat of an, uh, of an anachronism or I seem like um, a little, you know, there's something about what I do that seems different than the crop of what most other people are doing, but it's probably – just because, like, I, I actually am some kind of weird holdover from that earlier period. Do you feel like the the DYI sort of era, because I feel like things are more easy to put out there and it, and more accessible, but I don't, you don't see as many people, or maybe I'm out of touch, but I don't see as many people doing that as much anymore, and it seems like they should be doing it more than, than ever. Right, except... The the insidiousness of screen time just takes over everything. It's so much worse than uh, than it ever was in the even in the absolute depths of '80s Reagan era couch potato American uh, brain dead culture. Like every you know every time uh, some band like in the eighties or, you know, when people were like, you know, down with MTV or, you know, down with watching television, uh, you know, like I consider myself right now to be somehow I have a leg up on culture because I don't have a television, right? I don't watch television. I have no idea what goes on on TV. And that's been the case for me for like, you know, a very, very long time. I haven't had a TV since like, you know, yeah, I don't even know since like 1992 or something. Um, but the amount of time that I spend, you know, just checking email or looking at some stupid thing on the internet or looking at a, you know, old Iggy pop footage on YouTube or whatever the hell it is. If you think of all of that as watching TV, then, you know, currently we as a culture watch TV more than any time in the past. So, that just means you're just less interested in reading zines and making zines and making music and booking a tour. You don't need it. You're just entertained and anesthetized uh, all day long, every day. From like the minute you wake up, uh, you know, if it's like it comes in these little bite-sized chunks. You don't think of it in terms of like sitting down and watching two hours of primetime TV, but the actual hours of your day that are spent just, uh, engaged in uh, getting something out of the screen, it really just eats up that much of your brain, like so much more than it ever was in the past, I think. Yeah, no, I've I've spent hours, like, I spent hours watching car commercials from my hometown, (laughs) and like, for hours, and I felt like I committed like some horrible sex, like I just felt gross, (laughs) it was like, I felt like I just like masturbated. Yeah, I'll just watch him. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'll just watch puppies. How can I not watch puppies? Uh, how can I not watch, uh, you know, cats and babies interacting with each other? Or, uh, oh, whoops, there's another, you know, half hour of my life gone. Or how, uh, 
Oh, there on the side, there's like uh, some picture of some uh, naked lady or something. Let me just click that just for a minute. It'll only take a minute just to at least look at what the hell is that article about. Uh, you know, it just like adds up in this insane way that um, it, it's just crazy. I feel like the the uh, amount of productivity that has been subtracted from the human race over the last 10 years is like incalculable. It's it's totally insane. Um, will it last forever? I don't know. I mean, uh, but definitely the era that we're in, we feel it's yeah. So that, that's a that's a big difference. I feel like you know we don't need. It, it, imagine like not. I mean, I don't know. Why am I an expert? I'm not any more of an expert on this than you or anybody else who you know thinks about this stuff, so I, I shouldn't even go on and on about it. But that's, you know. <laughs> I was greatly enjoying it. Yeah, it's I, there's there's smidgens of things like I'm like I wonder like if uh, people's vinyl obsession and I, I can't remember recently I noticed something else that was like a, a sort of a, a retro fascination younger people are having. I'm like, is that uh, is this a yearning for uh, something more grounded, or, or is that what people are seeking out? I don't know if that's there's any truth in that. Uh, well, you know, all of I feel like youth culture um, is kind of you know you're seeking to define your identity by the things that you're into because your identity is not quite defined by the things that you do. You're not so you know you're not uh, an electrician or you're not. Uh, uh, you know, a senator or whatever it is that you would define your identity by. Your identity is defined by like, oh, you know, I'm into vinyl. I've got a really great collection of uh, garage rock. And, so, you know, there's something that like you have to show for your time on Earth that says something about like your abilities and your thought process and what you're capable of and what you've uh, accomplished and who you are and your interests. Um, and, you know, like being into vinyl or being into music or being into whatever it is, it, you know, fulfills that identity uh, until something else comes along to fulfill it that gives you a greater, you know, more grounded sense of identity and accomplishment. Although there's nothing, uh, you know, one might not really be any better than the other, perhaps. Um but I do think that, you know, people are into vinyl now. People are into cassettes now, which I find ridiculous because... Uh, <laughs> I do, too. You I, know. I bought an album from a band in Canada, like a mail order, and I got a cassette, and I was like, what the fuck can I do? With I can't do anything with this. <clears throat> right. I mean, there was totally a time when cassettes were the most punk rock way to go. It was the cheapest, most convenient way to distribute your music and to trade and to copy albums and to make mixes. And, you know, there are some qualities of tapes that you don't find in other media, but it's certainly not the most convenient and cheapest way to do things. It's just a pure affectation. It's this total boutique thing that, you know, people come to my shows and ask me if I have stuff on tape. Well, I have my first four albums were all on tape from, you know, 98, 99, 2000. I was one of the last guys to switch to doing CDs. I didn't make my first CD until 2001. I was doing tapes all the way up till then. And I was like the last holdout. But, you know, once you switch over, 
see the manufacture time and the cost. They're so much cheaper and faster and easier to carry on tour. I mean, if you can imagine carrying a box of tapes on tour versus a box of CDs, uh, and, you know, there's every – there's basically no – there's nothing like efficient about the cassette and you know as far as i'm concerned like punk and do-it-yourself culture and a self-sustaining life in the arts uh relies on efficiency in, in a lot of ways so any of these things that are just kind of uh you know really like weird little extras are are just not they're not efficient and therefore like it's they're just kind of ridiculous to me do you do you release on vinyl at all, or do you skip that? Say again. Do you release on vinyl at all, or do you just skip that whole thing? No, I, I release on vinyl. In fact, I'm working on. Um, there's two of my albums that have never been on vinyl. Uh, my second album and my third album, uh, which came out on Rough Trade in uh, the uh, whatever year, 2003, 2005, like in the era where record labels were not putting stuff out on vinyl. As of like 2007, all my albums on Rough Trade have been released on CD and on vinyl. And um, I did do a vinyl edition recently of my first album, from uh, my first CD, that is, from 2001. I recently put out on vinyl for the first time a couple of years ago. But there's two albums of mine that have never been on vinyl that I would like to see happen on vinyl. I'm working on doing that. Um, and that's that's actually part of how we, you and I got back in touch because uh, I contacted Zach Smith because he had done a piece of art that corresponded with a song on my second album, and I was kind of thinking of what I could use for bonus tracks and bonus artwork and just sort of you know extras that I could include with the vinyl edition of my second album, and I thought it'd be really neat to include Zach's piece of art. Um, for that, so in contacting him recently, he put me back in touch with you. So here we are at long last. I, you know, it's as a. I'm 45, so I grew up in the record era, and I like, and I miss. I don't like downloading music, and in fact, I used to have all your music, and then I my computer got wiped out, and I lost most of your music, which is not, <laughs> which is upsetting. But it's like I miss the days of where you would hold something and you read the goddamn the 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 lyrics and the songs and I could tell you I don't I don't even bands I listen to a ton now I don't even know what half the songs are called because you don't stare at anything anymore you just kind of put it on and meander about your house <laughs> and I think that hurts music right and the, the huge glut of it like you're just like yeah I've got you know 60 gigs worth of stuff on my uh in my iTunes library I was actually trying recently to just listen to my entire iTunes library, which is like over a solid year's worth of music at the moment. I just listened to it in alphabetical order just to like, just to like, you know, listen to all of it. So, you know, it took me like weeks to even get up to like the D's. But I like digital music. I think there's a definite, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, and, you know, especially for me, traveling, being a touring musician, um, there were a lot of uh, hassles when you had to carry tapes around in a car, a lot of hassles when you had to carry CDs on tour. What CDs am I going to take on this tour? Uh, they get kicked around in the car. They always get destroyed. Um, you can't take that many. It's absolutely incredible that you can go on tour and, you know, if you have three people in your band, 
the amount of music and audio books and podcasts and, you know, albums to get introduced to just because of what's on people's laptops or whatever. Um, that's really cool. I think that's great. Um, and what I love recently is the fact that you can buy legal downloads of some increasingly obscure records. And that just astonishes me because as a buyer of used vinyl, um, I've, most of my collection has not benefited the artists or labels at all, sad to say, because uh, most of the stuff that I have, most of the music in my house is like used vinyl, uh, which I bought from used record stores, which it's good that it supports the record shops, but, you know, uh, all of the artists don't see any money from that, and none of the labels do. Um, so lately I've noticed it's crazy the amount of, like, buyable albums through Amazon or through even little labels websites where for, you know, $7.99, $6.99, $8.99, $9.99, you know, with a couple of clicks and the push of a button, I would gladly pay $8 or $9 to buy, you know, some obscure Krautrock record that I would never find on used vinyl or I would never find for a price that I was willing to pay. Um, and it makes me so much happier than just downloading it for free or listening to it for free on YouTube or copying it from a friend. Um, you know, because eight bucks is like a, that's a very fair price for a record. And I'm really happy that right now, just in the last year or two, it seems like there's this era where, like, even really obscure stuff, like private press stuff, uh, is now viable. I mean, I just got, like, Circuit Rider, which is, like, this weird sort of psychedelic biker record from, like, late 70s, early 80s that uh, Paul Major talks about as one of his favorite private press records. And it's, uh, you know, I would, it's the kind of record I would like, read about but until there's a reissue of it, I'm not going to spend a thousand bucks on the original vinyl. Uh, but now you can buy some little label has done a reissue and they've made it available to buy the download for like eight or nine bucks of an insanely obscure rare album. You can, you can just look it up. There it is, eight bucks, an official purchase. And that's, I think that's incredible. That's fantastic. Yeah, I like a lot of old 20s stuff and it's just. There's so much uh, out there now, and even like on blogs, and it's like a lot of it's uh, public domain, so it's not like you're stealing from anybody. I got obsessed with a website a few years ago that was all like 20s Indian music, but it was like it was all it was incredible, and it's like I'd never heard it, and it was just like it was like kind of like Ravi Shankar, but weirder. It was it was a great thing to just get like that people can just go out there and discover just random shit now is kind of incredible. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely hurtling towards a new plane of reality where uh, the collective human consciousness is just, you know, we're kind of just all melding on the astral plane of all thoughts that have ever been thunk are uh, available for our mind to intersect with, whether it's in music or writing or yeah, whatever. It it's uh, Yeah, we're just leaving our physical limitations behind. It makes me think of like the the people who are children now and the the things that that they have access to to influence them creatively. Like when I was a kid, you couldn't just walk over to a computer and watch a Fellini movie, or even I didn't even know who the hell that was. And like now, 
that shit's Fellini and weird, obscure music. It's like, God, if the, if that generation doesn't do something interesting with what all they have access to, they've really failed us. <laughs> Though I'll be dead by the time they yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I feel like, I, I always feel like we are sort of like the last generations that are even going to remember reality. Like, we're just sort of like going to be, you know, in a museum, like people are just going to talk to us and be like, you guys were actually alive when, like, reality existed. Uh, what was that like? I, I feel like we've already, like, descended off the precipice. Like, at least we, like, can look far enough back to, like, see where that precipice was. Like, all these younger generations from here on out um, aren't even going to have a memory of that. Because, you know, from here on out, everybody is documented, for one thing, uh, videoed and photographed from, you know, the moment they're born – so it's right now from this generation forward, everybody is going to be able to see footage of their grandparents, footage of their great grandparents, footage of their great great grandparents uh, in a way that's going to affect your psychology and your like sense of time and ancestry in ways that we can't possibly comprehend. Like we are the last generation that, you know, we don't have footage of what our great 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 grandparents were like as teenagers, you know, like, or what they were like in their 20s. Or, you know, from here on out, everything is documented and everybody will be able to access in increasing, you know, staggering layers. They're like, they'll be able to like essentially hang out with like a full lineage of ancestry, like one generation after another, which is totally insane. Like that is so bizarre. It's an interesting concept because I was thinking like my mother always says like, oh, you have your grandfather's traits and I, he died when I was a kid and like, you know, gestures and stuff. And I'm like, I, uh, and uh, oh, shit, I can't think of the author. He did wrote a book about it. But but like like maybe that that's a genetic thing. <laughs> it's like for maybe for centuries somebody's been, you know, in my family making these certain kind of hand gestures. It's just an interesting concept because then you could actually study something like, I don't know if that's too much of a pothead theory <laughs> or what, but that's like, a, uh, it just seems like it would be a interesting study. Did that Was that just totally weird? Right. And what, uh, you know, what psychological effects that will have on people to realize, you know, the ways in which they are merely echoes of uh, former generations, perhaps, or I don't know what psychological effects that will have. Um, another thing that I think about is how, like, right now, we are probably in the very, very brief period of time in which there are more living people on Facebook and email accounts than dead people. And this time is going to, you know, every year that goes by, there's more dead people on and for the rest of the the whole rest of uh, the future, if these sorts of social media sites and web pages and et cetera continue, um, you know, people die every day. And eventually, the crowd of like graveyard websites and Facebook, et cetera, pages is just going to like accumulate and accumulate. So I think like right now, those are in the minority, but they're just going to grow. Uh, and if things go on, I mean, of course, things are unlikely. Things just change so rapidly that you know, 100 years from now, who the hell knows what uh, will be going on. But if things were to go on the way they are now, like this little gap of time in which there's like more actually alive and active parts of the web, it's just going to be like looked at as this weird little tip of the iceberg to the time to 
come in which like the majority of it is this huge graveyard of people that have died. That's interesting because I was thinking recently of how like um, like yeah they compile letters and you know like Groucho letters and and letters to Theo and all these things that they've compiled over the years and due to the internet that kind of genre is going to die because no one writes letters anymore. And if they do write emails, it's like, hey, blah, 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 real quick, and then they fucking send it. But that's probably what the next, they'll just compile people's, like, posts and, like, weird, that'll be the next level of that. Yeah, um, just, you know, Van Gogh's email account. Just looks through, it's like, it's, it's essentially, it's like a diary, you know, because it's like a diary that where you write a little something every day and, you know, conduct your businesses and whatever else and... uh you'll be able to pour over it in these details. I don't know. The other thing that I think is like maybe the internet will just die and go away. Like maybe the whole thing will just be done, whether we get sick of it and move on or something supplants it or it is physically destroyed by an earthquake or something. I have this whole idea for like a Hollywood movie where, um, you know, the internet is in danger of being wiped out. There's like a number of the servers have been destroyed by something. I mean, there's just a few servers left in, like, exotic locations on the Earth that contain all of the Internet uh, and, you know, whatever heroes are running around trying to uh, stop whatever uh, thing is destroying the Internet, um, much like the uh, Library of Alexandria was destroyed at some point in the ancient world and eliminating a huge amount of the accumulated world knowledge up till that point. Um, the Internet is not actually in cyberspace. It actually is all in servers, which can be physically obliterated. So you could actually have um, a situation in which uh, you had to rescue the Internet or pull the plug on it and make the entire thing just disappear. So uh, just one of my million-dollar Hollywood movie ideas, uh, uh, which, uh, which I have a handful but that's a because it's like how much knowledge or and information are we putting on there? And if if they can destroy the server with my credit report on it, that would be a real bonus to me. But yeah, well, um, it could all come down to one person like looking at one plug and being like, I can yank this plug and zap everything. That that would kind of fast. I would kind of be into that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I also have this theory about how. Um, the whole like Y2K anxiety in in 1999, I think that was just like this collective wish that we could kind of see what was coming. We could see this tidal wave of internet at that time. By 99, it was like just about to slam into the mainland of our consciousness and like, you know, totally swamp us in internet reality. And Y2K was kind of like, us just praying that, like, here's the last chance for us to, like, avert this future that's almost on us and, like, have this new reality not happen. If, like, somehow all computers were wiped out right now, we would never even know what it was that we almost found ourselves immersed in. But uh, as it so happened, uh, that did not happen. Y2K didn't happen, and uh, we did find ourselves swamped by that tidal wave that we could see on the horizon. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you because I am kind of like, yeah, I kind of wish that wouldn't happen because I just – I feel like, man, I probably would have written a billion books by now if I didn't get caught up in watching just random. Uh, yeah, 
it's so horrible to think about the yeah because i really you know i mean yeah we were around as adults before that hit and uh i know my own productivity level i mean i really hit the ground running when i got out of college i was like drawing comic books writing songs i was doing so much stuff that like by 2001 2002 had just like ground to this slow crawl that I've been on ever since. But on the other hand, you know, part of that is also because I was able to uh, really make this whole other career for myself as a touring musician, which would not have been possible without the internet, uh, for better or worse. I mean, it still uh, means less actual productive time of creating things that hadn't existed before, which is like what really feels the best to do. How much time do you spend on the road? Uh, not as much as people seem to think I do. People are always like, man, you're touring all the time. And I'm like, not really compared to bands that really tour all the time. I, you know, within every year, I like to think that every year I do like one U.S. tour, one U.K. tour, and one Europe tour, perhaps. Although sometimes it's a bit more than that. And sometimes there's some other areas that I've toured. Uh, maybe there'll be some shows in Canada. I've done a couple tours in Australia, New Zealand, China, Finland, Russia, uh, weird areas that occasionally I have the opportunity to tour in. But usually, you know, three to four weeks is totally sufficient time to do a tour of Europe. Uh, two to three weeks is plenty of time to do England and Ireland even. Uh, and about four weeks is enough time to tour the U.S. So all you're really looking at is like maybe three months out of the year. And I try to sort of parcel it out so that I'm not on the road for longer than like three weeks at a time if I can manage it. Uh, but, of course, I also can't say no to opportunities of opening up for other bands. So occasionally it's like, all right, I've done my own three- or four-week U.S. tour or four week or whatever it is, but now, uh, you know, Dr. Dog or Adam Green or the Cribs or some other band that I know or some band that I don't know, uh, or, you know, I, I did the U.S. tour stuff with Quasi last year. I sort of knew them from before. And then uh, there's other, you know, I never know when somebody's going to contact me and offer a support tour, which I always really appreciate because it's a chance to, like, play a tour that I don't have to book myself, first of all. That's great. Um, so then, you know, maybe that adds a few more weeks of tour here and there. And I can never say no to those opportunities because it's uh, sometimes in Europe, sometimes in other areas. Uh, I'll always say yes, most of the, you know, unless the conditions are really terrible. Um, so support tours sometimes kind of come in droves. And that in those situations, sometimes I find myself touring like over and over again. Uh, for more weeks on end than I would I would if it was my own uh, choice, but it's still great. I, I'm always really happy when those things happen. Is it just as well as the uh, the road life in those situations is better, or is it just because? And it, it, what is it about that that you like more? Well, it's really a chance to get heard by a lot of new people. I mean, if I'm playing a headlining tour and I play in Omaha, you know, maybe. Maybe I have 30 fans in Omaha or something or 10 fans in Omaha or 50 or whatever it is. But if I'm opening up for 
a band, you know, if I'm opening up for the Mountain Goats or something and there's like 200 people or 300 people that come to that show, then, you know, that's that many more people that might be interested in seeing me the next time I come through. And it generally works very well for me because I think no matter who I'm opening up for, uh, what I do and what I do with my band, like, is interesting to people. And it's it certainly does not suffer from overexposure. Like, most people just have never heard of me. So uh, people, like, get into it, and, uh, you know, I sell some of my comic books at the shows. I sell whatever it is that I sell. And, you know, you just make that many more fans and meet that many more people that can book shows for you in the future. So it's just this, it's just always, like, a great expansion of, uh, of contacts and possibilities. Yeah, I saw you play at uh, Silver Lake Lounge here, in, or no, uh, Spaceland in, in Los Angeles, uh, probably six years ago. But that's the great thing is was you were very accessible as well, because you and I actually, I'm, I, I totally don't expect you to remember this, but we had a long conversation, and we talked about a bunch of shit, and it was like, that doesn't happen often, and it's very... You know, it, it, that kind of one-on-one makes you appreciate uh, the, you know, someone you they're you're a fan of all the more because you're like, oh, the guy's totally cool. He's not being some dick who runs off and hides. Well, I sometimes run off and hide. <laughs> I'll, you know, there's a given the circumstances, there might be a gigs where there's a dressing room or there's a some place where, or maybe there's somebody else that can help sell merch after the show, and I don't have to do it myself. Or there's you know, maybe there's some friend of mine that's there that I wanted to run off and have dinner with after the show and not hang out. And I find that it gets kind of depressing after doing that. If if I go like a, a few shows or a whole week or something where I'm not like out there selling merch myself after each set and not out there like either asking the audience for like anybody that can house my band for the night or uh you know, you don't really. It, it's it, it, it's it's uh, such a reminder of why you're even out there when you talk to people after shows, and somebody says, you know, I really liked that one song that you did, or somebody says, you know, when you did that song about, uh, you know, communism in Vietnam, you had this part wrong because, um, I'm a professor of uh, Vietnamese history, and when you said blah blah blah, uh, you sort of misrepresented that you really ought to say it this way. And I'll be like, oh, you're right. Uh, that's a, thank you for that correction. So it's just such a more enriching experience to like actually get more feedback from the people that you're performing for and uh, meeting, you know, all over the U.S. and all over the world. It's such a great way to meet people and just hear different perspectives that without that, you know, when I, you know, when I've done tours where I go a week or so, and every, after every set, you just disappear backstage or you end up back in your hotel room. It really just, it's kind of deadening and you're just, you're just much more likely to feel like, why am I out here? Or, uh, or you can feel fine. You can be like, all right, great. I'm getting paid. I'm doing good shows, but you're just missing this whole other level of, a, uh, what you could be appreciating about the amazing opportunity of running around and like just hearing from different people. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that and I guess you kind of answered it but it's like 
what you said at the top of this is, uh, you know, how we living in an insulated world of New York and everybody kind of thinks the same. That's the same kind of element in L.A. It's like I'm surrounded by people who think like I do, blah, blah, blah. It's not very it's like and then you go out on the road and it's like sometimes you're, you know, sometimes you're terrified, you're terrified by what you see. And sometimes you're like, oh, God, humanity's everyone's pretty decent. And uh, I, I, w- I was curious if like how that affects because, you know, like you go to. No offense to Florida, but man, I've seen some bumper stickers in that state. You're just like, oh fuck, we are, we are regressing. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a definite culture clash in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of areas that, uh, you know, and there's also you could just go out there and be like, man, humanity is really drunk and annoying, uh, in all these rock clubs because that happens a lot too. That's really the main reason why I think a lot of people. Do prefer to disappear after a show because you got to deal with a lot. Sometimes you got to deal with a lot of really annoying people that just want to talk to you and they're like just drunk or they're just uh, whatever it is. You can't. They sort of have you cornered because you can't go home because you don't have a home to go to. So uh, sometimes it, it's just like uh, yeah, like my old bass player, my brother Jack. Uh, he would always, you know, that really used to bother him a lot. He just like hated talking to these people after shows that, uh, you know, were either like want, whatever reason it was they wanted to talk to him. Um, you know, and some people are just like that. Uh, they don't, they, you know, they prefer not to have to socialize with like all these people. But, you know, I just did, uh, I just played a show in Washington DC last week where I was opening up for Sean Lennon's band, the ghost of the saber tooth tiger. And, uh, Sean and his girlfriend Charlotte, uh, who were the, the front people in that band, they were just out there after the gig signing autographs and taking pictures with people. And they had a line, practically the entire audience, like lined up in an orderly fashion to like, for like autographs and photos and stuff. It was crazy. I've like never seen that before. And that's like, on one hand, that's got to be kind of a hassle. Like, you just play a show and, you know, you have all this other work to do. You got to, like, sign all these autographs and meet, shake all these hands and meet all these people, you know, probably for, like, yeah, at least an hour after the set, if not two hours. Like, they have a really long line. But that, on the other hand, it was, like, cool if, you know, they made themselves accessible. And uh, that was uh, – a lot of people really appreciated that. You often, when you do U.S. tours and stuff, you like stay with strangers, like you, because I've seen it on your website where you're like, "I'm playing such and such town. I need if anyone has a place, I could crash." Have you just gone and stayed with complete strangers? Oh, all the time, uh, especially in the old days. And I mean, in the the first few years of touring, uh, it was also a financial necessity to have strangers that would provide transportation. So I would have put on the website and send out my email list, you know, is there anybody that can draw anybody with a car that wants to, you know, be our driver on this tour and, uh, you know, totally random, every single tour, some totally random stranger. It always worked. Unbelievable. Uh, it's really unbelievable to me that it, it, that sustained us for years. We wouldn't have been able to tour without that. Um, the income level at the beginning was very, very low, and it's just slowly built up over the years. Uh, you know, somebody would email and be like, I've got a car, and that sounds like a lot of fun. I can take off. You know, I have a two-week vacation, and I was looking for an adventure, and, you know, I love your music, and I would love to draw. Or I've never even heard of you, you know, a friend of mine who likes your music 
said that you were looking for a driver and I've no I you know, I've never heard of you, I never heard of your music, but that sounds kinda cool to go on a West Coast tour for a week and you know, I have a a grandparent in uh Seattle that I haven't seen, so I'll get off the tour in Seattle and hang out there. And we would always treat the driver as another member of the band. At the end of the night would you know, they got an equal split of the money as each band member got. There was you know, each person if there were Three people in the car, if there were four people, if there were five people, everybody got an equal split of the night's pay. And that might have, some nights that might have been $33 each, some nights that might have been $63 each, whatever it was. And then plus, you know, I would be covering all the gas costs. So they got to travel around for free, get paid equal to the band, and, you know, have a little adventure. Um, so, and we made great friends that way. Uh, there were really only one or two times that you end up with some kind of psychopath. Um, and the, the same thing with staying at people's houses. You just meet great people, and you see all these interesting houses, and you see, like, the way people live all over the world. Uh, you know, you see what a, you know, you see what a bathtub looks like in, uh, you know, Finland or something. You see what a, you see what a kitchen cabinet looks like and what kind of weird foods they have, you know, in Madrid or whatever, it's it's like if if you're just staying in hotels, I, I can't even imagine the what all these other bands like miss out on uh, of what the you know the, the the lack of engagement in what they're actually doing and the areas they're going to when they're not like meeting people and seeing seeing all that stuff. Uh, it became it you know it becomes awkward when you're playing big enough shows where you don't need to do that stuff anymore, it, it just comes across as weird when like, you know, you're obviously getting, you know, maybe you're getting 500 bucks for the show. Maybe you're getting 800 bucks. Maybe you're getting whatever it is. You, you could afford to buy a hotel room for your band. You, you know, so why are you asking people to stay at their house? Like, it's like, it just gets weird. And, Therefore, you're sort of like stuck staying in hotels. And then you just kind of miss out. You're like, oh, great. I, you know, I just did a three-week tour all around, you know, wherever it was. And all I saw were a bunch of hotel rooms. Sometimes hotel rooms are interesting and they give you a flavor of the local culture in their own way. Um, and sometimes it's great to not have to chit-chat to people. You can just go there and go to sleep or go there and sit around and check your email and not feel like you're being antisocial or, you know, whatever it is. Um so there's, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to either side of it, but I do feel like um, there were a lot of really cool, interesting experiences and friendships that formed because of like the really crazy way we used to tour for a few years uh, when we were just getting our bearings. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's, it, when you go out there, it's, it's can be very, uh, hopeful it's like because you meet people and you're like oh there are the world is filled with people who just maybe want to help other people uh which yeah you live in los angeles and you just think oh there's another person taking a selfie yeah well you know and then you you sort of have you when you're like relying on people you just build up like this huge karmic debt also it's like oh man i owe so many people favors I've like always got people staying at my apartment. 
um, from all over the place, like either people that I stayed with or people that I met. Um, but that, that's cool, too, you know, that I can help out sometimes. But, you know, it's sort of like the idea of, like, independent touring and being, like, an indie artist. We used to joke that, like, you know, it's not indie – it's not independent touring. It's dependent touring because you're just, like, dependent on favors from everybody to make the whole thing work. Um, so that kind of feels, you know, at a certain point, you're like, oh, God, I'm just like, my whole life is just based on, like, asking favors of people. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it was it was definitely crucial. Like, I could not have uh, gotten off the ground uh, without that. And, you know, there's no guarantee that uh, I won't go right back to that. Uh, you know, things go up and down in music all the time. There's no, you know, there's no possible reason to believe that uh, you get more successful or uh, that you stay at the same level or any of that stuff. Um, you know, you look at uh, all the old blues guys or jazz guys that go through maybe five years or ten years of doing well, and then they go through twenty years of really scraping by, and then they go through five years of being rediscovered or you know whatever it is. Uh, over a long period of time, you're probably going to have all sorts of highs and lows. Yeah, that's what uh, John Sinclair did my show, and he said, uh, other people's couches are my social security. And he's, because he's in his 70s, yeah. but he's still, like, going around and doing poetry readings, and it's, but it's, it's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of people, uh, probably, in that circumstance. Um, Biff Rose is another guy like that. He had a lot of albums out in the 60s, and now, I think he's just, like, he's like a, we're street artists in New Orleans, but he's got various fans that he can go and stay with in different parts of the country, just on their couches and stuff. But it seems tough to be an old, you know, the older you get, um, obviously that becomes like, it's like harder on you physically. And um, most of the people that go to concerts are young people. So it already feels weird for me, you know, as a 38 year old, when you go and you you go like end up staying at somebody's house and they're like you know 22, uh, and they're like hey you know hey mom I brought home this like old man who's <laughs> like gonna be staying on the couch. It's like a little awkward. It's not as cool as when you're 22 also and they're like you know just bringing home a friend. Um, it, it just starts to get more awkward. At least I look young, but you know every passing year I look a little older and you know is this gonna be like when I'm 50? Is this gonna make any sense? Like am I gonna be staying at you know, but the majority of people that go to gigs are, you know, in their 20s, and that's just the way it is. Oh, no, I go to gigs now, and I'm just, uh, I, like, I'll see friends' bands, and I'm just, first of all, I'm always like, are they going to have chairs? Can I sit down? Because I'm, I'm too old yeah. to, to stand for the two hours. But, but it's like, it's just, I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, I am so, like, now 20-year-olds, I'm like, oh, you look like you're 10. Like, it doesn't even look 20 to me anymore. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're like police officers and, you know, accountants and everything else, and you're like, wow, like, you're like half my age. Uh, but just to, to sort of end, I, I wanted to uh, ask you, too, because uh, I saw you do a poem online about, um, well, it's a song, but you, about uh, Pussy Riot and uh, the the... I guess sort of the theme of that song is just uh, how you there's still people inspire you. I was just wondering if there's any ar artists or that most people might not be aware of or that you're listening to that you would want to uh, sort of put their names out there or who's 
if that makes sense. I really garbled the way I wanted to ask that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one standard that I try to hold myself to and never quite live up to is uh, Professor Louie, who's a rapper, sort of political rapper, who also is my uncle. Uh, I've been seeing his shows since I was a kid and listening to his albums. And he's never had any interest in, like, you know, making it in the music business or whatever. He usually only gives performances if there's, like, uh, you know, a benefit show or a union rally or some some something that, like, has some uh, other element to it than just playing a club show and hoping to make some money on the door. And he's just a, a really just excellent, excellent writer and deliverer of his material. Uh, he's got a new album out. Um, and uh, that, that uh, I think it's coming out this week or something. Well, you know, when he puts an album out, he just makes copies himself. I help him sell some off my own website and he just sells them at his shows. Uh, I've taken him on tour. I took him on tour in England in 2007 and, you know, he just blows people away every time he performs. But usually if I'm writing something or, you know, thinking of songs or putting together an album, uh, it's definitely high in my mind, like whether it would, you know, whether I can play this for my uncle, whether Professor Louie would uh, approve of it or, you know, not that he would disapprove, but just like, you know, could this possibly, could, you know, would I be able to play this song? in a context that uh, would make it not seem like totally silly and self-centered and uh, half-assed, like compared to the kind of work that he does, that is just like, you know, some of my favorite writing and his vocal delivery and everything I find very inspirational. So that's definitely one artist that, um, you know, serves that role for me. That's uh, And uh, where can uh, my listeners uh, find your your websites and all that stuff if you plug all those things for me. Uh, I mean, if you just type in Jeffrey Lewis, presumably the stuff will come up. Uh, my site is just the Jeffrey Lewis site. Because maybe somebody already had JeffreyLewis.com. I don't remember why I ended up with the Jeffrey Lewis site. But, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's foolish when people even give out their website. You know, you hear people on the radio being like, well, if you want to know about my new book, you can go to uh, http colon backslash slash www dot like you don't need any of that stuff. Just be like, you know the name of the book. Just type it in, and like the stuff will come up. Like you don't need the specific address. It, it, I feel like that's like such a you know I I, I don't even put my own. I don't, I don't even put my website on my own comic books or on my own albums anymore. I kind of feel like it's redundant. It's like if somebody wants to find me, you just type my name in and then all this stuff comes up. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the the annoying thing with the – I feel like it's – I've ranted about this before, but why W? Why – speak of wasted time, if it was any other letter – it's the only fucking letter that has so many syllables. Double U. That's three syllables. You have to say double U, double U, double U. That's nine syllables. That is a total waste. If only it was like T or anything, D, if you only were like 
my site's at ddd dot blah 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 at ttt dot whatever. As long as they avoid K. The amount of yeah, the amount of hours that have been wasted by people having to say double you, double you, double you. <laughs> I've never. That's a good point. I've never thought of that. Um, I mean, the amount of syllables. F nine syllables. You could say A B C D E F G H I. That takes the exact same amount of syllables, going all the way up from A to I. Uh, you know, that's nine syllables. That's nine letters that you could say in the time it takes to say www. How much life have we used, lost by saying W? Uh, yeah, it's a, I, I've been it, I, I've been robbed. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. Uh, I've personally enjoyed this very much. I hope you did as well. Yeah, I hope it all came out with enough clarity or whatever. Uh, you know. Basically, I just will yak and yak, and uh, I don't know how much of it is worth listening to or even comes out, like, clear enough over a phone line. But glad we finally got this done. A pleasure to talk to you or to talk at you, as I did most of the time. Hopefully, we'll cross paths again. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Again, Amazon. Donate if you can. Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer.com. And uh, I, I love you. Thank you so much for listening.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.